So first, as we consider Exodus 14, let us be clear that the parting of the Red Sea really happened and that it was supernatural and not merely a coincidence resulting from natural phenomena. This is the way that the Bible clearly portrays it, as a miracle, as something supernatural. And all attempts to explain this story otherwise are rooted in a naturalistic worldview as opposed to a supernaturalistic worldview. All attempts to explain this story otherwise are rooted in a naturalistic worldview stemming from disbelief in God and disbelief in God's supernatural intervention in this world. Someone famously said that if you can get past the first four words of the Bible, nothing that comes after should surprise you or be hard for you to believe. In the beginning, God. If you grant that, then the rest of the Bible makes complete sense. And you shouldn't be surprised or shocked or there should be no real rational reason to disbelieve if it is that you've gotten over the first four words. In the beginning, God. If there is a God, which there is, then we ought to be supernaturalists. And we ought to expect that from time to time, He who made everything, including natural laws, might from time to time supersede them, as is the case here. There is a story of a liberal preacher who was preaching on the Exodus uh, as the story goes, in a, as a guest in a church that was much more conservative and still believed in the Bible. And as he was preaching on this story in Exodus 14, someone in the congregation shouted, What a mighty miracle, parting the seas so that the children of Israel could pass through. Well, the preacher, fresh from the ivory tower, fresh from academia, thought he would have a chance to enlighten these simpletons about the way things really are. So he said something like this, well, we know that it wasn't really a miracle, but that the tide was simply going out, and there was also a strong wind blowing, which also affected the natural ebbs and flows of the sea, and the Israelites were able to make their way through a shallow and swampy area as the tide had gone out in about six inches of water at a shallow crossing point. And the same person in the congregation then said, Well then, what a mighty miracle. God drowned the whole army of the Egyptians in six inches of water. <laughs> the point is well taken that the Bible presents this account to us as nothing short of a miracle. And it really happened. But what is the takeaway? What is the application? Is it that we all have our Red Sea? just like we all have our Goliaths, and that the Lord will make a way for us in the midst of all our obstacles and difficulties in our life. So, you know, you need a promotion at work. Well, you know, the Lord can part away in the Red Sea for you, right? Or you're struggling with sickness of some kind. Well, the Lord can part away and make a way through the Red Sea for you. Is this the meaning of this text? Is this what we're supposed to take from it? The answer is no. Of course, he who did part the Red Sea could make a way for you to get a promotion at work if he so chose. And of course, he could heal you of your disease if he so chose. But this is not what we're to go away with 
from this passage, thinking that, okay, God's going to make a way for me in my Red Sea. The meaning, rather, is that God brings his people safely through the waters of judgment, and that all they have to do is trust. As death was the default in the Passover, but God preserved his people, so death is the default with respect to being on the floor of the Red Sea, but God preserved his people. Let's begin exploring that main idea where it's just simply an exposition of the passage. Have the Israelites forgotten who God is to them? God is the God who called their forefather Abram out of idolatry in the land of Ur. To be God to he and to his offspring after him, to Isaac and to Jacob, who became Israel, and to the children of Israel. He is the God who brought a most unlikely scenario to pass, sending Joseph ahead of the children of Israel into Egypt by way of a slave caravan, and then exalting him to prominence in Pharaoh's court so that Jacob and his other sons would not perish during the famine. God is the God who delivered them, having moved the whole family to Egypt. God is the God who delivered that whole family from slavery in Egypt, generations later, by ten mighty plagues, plus another sign before the ten plagues even started, where Moses' staff turned into a snake and gobbled up all the other snakes. And as we saw last week, this exodus was a testament to God's faithfulness. For God had promised to do just that, to bring the children of Israel up out of Egypt, ever since Abram's sojourning in Canaan. And so, when the Israelites went out, they brought the bones of Joseph with them when they left as a fulfillment of their promise to him. And Joseph's original request that they take his bones with them when they go was based on his faith that God would eventually keep his promise and bring the children up out of Egypt. So God was a faithful, promise-making, promise-keeping God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob and to the children of Israel. And he was a powerful God, far above all the deities of Egypt. And he had just proven that. Like within the last month prior to this account in Exodus 14. But look at how the hearts of the Israelites respond when they become pinned down between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. In verse 10, we see that they feared greatly. To their credit, it also says that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. But that must have been short-lived, for we read immediately after, in the very next verse, that they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. 
for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So these people give way to fear. They act as if there is no God on their side. That the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the God of the children of Israel, the promise-making and promise-keeping God, is not on their side. They act as if the only factor to consider is their ability to fight or flee. And they therefore despair because they have no real ability to fight with an army like this and no real ability to flee. It's almost as if they sang, a mighty fortress is our God in reverse. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble for him. His rage we can't endure. Lo, our doom is sure. This is the state of the hearts of the people of Israel as they're pinned between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. But how does God want them to respond? Does he call them in this case simply to arm themselves and to rally themselves and fight for themselves? Does God tell them, I have done so much for you. Now it's time for you to do something for yourselves. No. God's response to the people is to declare through his servant Moses in verses 13 and 14, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. It's as if God says, you got it all wrong. you got it backwards. The prince of darkness, Grim, tremble not for him. His rage you can endure. Lo, his doom is sure because I am a mighty fortress. This is essentially what God is saying, if we may take the liberty of paraphrasing. Don't fear. I brought you out of Egypt. I'm still with you. Look at the pillar of cloud. Look at the pillar of fire. I haven't left you. Stand there and watch as I deliver you again. And sure enough, without any help from the Israelites, God does indeed fight for them. We see that the pillar goes from the front of the camp around behind to make a blockade, as it were, between Pharaoh's army and the children of Israel as God drives back the waters of the sea. God causes a strong east wind to blow such that the water is driven back and it becomes a wall. In case it's not apparent to you, that's not actually how the tide goes out. If you've ever seen the tide go out, it doesn't go back and then pile up as if behind a wall. The, the way that this is presented to us is that it was a miracle that God drove back the water and piled it up to make a wall of water so that the Israelites could go through. <clears throat> and the Israelites cross over. Tim Keller makes the point that some, as they were going through, were probably like, wow, this is great. The Lord is a mighty God. Look at this deliverance that he has won for us. 
And other people were probably going through seeing the wall of water. <laughs> Maybe they could see fish swimming around. Oh, we're going to die, we're going to die. <laughs> but Keller makes the point that they were all equally saved. And so he makes the application that we all have differing degrees of faith. But so long as we are following our mediator through taking advantage of that means of salvation that God has provided for us, we're all equally saved, regardless of how we feel about it. So the Israelites make their way through the Red Sea, and they get to the other side. And then, just when the morning appeared in verse 27, just when the morning appeared, just as the sun rose, just as the Egyptians' most powerful god, Ra, the sun god, crested on the horizon, just then the Lord makes the wall of water crumble and the sea rushes back over the Egyptians. And not even their most powerful god can save them. God brings his people safely through the judgment that he rendered upon the Egyptians. You see, the Israelites went down to the bottom of the sea, you know. But when the Israelites went down to the bottom of the sea, they didn't die because God preserved them there at the bottom of the sea. When the Egyptians went down to the bottom of the sea, they did die. Just as death was the default in the Passover, unless God makes a way, all of the firstborn children of Egyptians and Israelites alike will die. So it is in this passage. Unless God makes a way, everyone that finds themselves at the bottom of the Red Sea will die. You can't go to the bottom of the sea, in case you didn't know, without special preservation from God, so that you don't die. So God brings his people safely through that which will mean death, destruction, judgment, wrath upon others. That's what this passage contains. How does it apply to us? Well, it applies actually in much the same way to us. After all, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the children of Israel is our God too. It's literally the same God we serve. The God of the promises, the God of the kept promises, the God of the ten plagues, the God of the parting of the Red Sea. This is our God. And we've only had more opportunity to see God's faithfulness to His promises and more opportunity to see God's power displayed throughout the course of history. If the Israelites should have trusted God based on what they knew of Him and what they had seen of Him and what they had heard of Him then, how much more should we trust God based on what we know now? Remember that we're not trusting that God will work out everything in our lives in just the way that we hope. We're not trusting in God to part the Red Sea 
of our stunted career. We're not trusting God to part the Red Sea of our financial setbacks and so forth. That's not what the Red Sea represents in this story. The Red Sea is representative, rather, of God's judgment upon his enemies. Those whom God desires to save, he brings safely through the judgment. And those whom he has decreed to damn, he he drowns in the judgment. So the comparison between them then and us now is not that they needed God to make a way through the Red Sea, and I need God to make a way for me to get promoted in the workplace. That's not the correspondence. That's not the nature of the correspondence. Rather, it's more like time stalks me as Pharaoh's army stalked the Israelites. My body ages and deteriorates. My certain death approaches, and I am liable to drown in God's judgment. And how do our hearts tend to respond naturally? We muster up our own resources and we contemplate facing death on our own, independently, as if there is no God on our side. And this leads either to pride or to despair. We either die with our heads naively held high, as if we have everything under control, and we perish bravely, though foolishly, in the Red Sea, so to speak. Or we die in despair, knowing that we're not ready, and we die grasping for one more hour of this life as the waters of the Red Sea come crashing down upon us, and we are parted from this life. But how does God want us to respond? The same way that he instructed the Israelites then to respond. Listen again to verses 13 and 14. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord. Which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today. You shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Spurgeon says, I dare say you will, you will think it a very easy thing to stand still. But it is one of the postures that a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing that we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, Stand fast, and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. See, we are prone to do everything but stand still. Our hearts are prone to pride or despair at the prospect of doing 
Can we save ourselves? If we answer yes, then our hearts stray to pride as we strive and we march and we march quickly and we do everything that we can preparing to rescue ourselves from God's judgment. If we answer no, we can't save ourselves and yet believe there is no one else to save us, then we despair. If we conceive of life and death and the judgment and the afterlife as God accepts people that are good enough and we look at ourselves and we realize we are not good enough. And no matter how fast we march, how quickly we march and how hard we work, we still realize we're never going to be good enough. We just can't fight all these chariots that are coming at us. We're going to either be overcome by them or drown in the Red Sea. It leads us to despair. If we believe there is no one else to save us, we despair. Oh, but there is another. And God bids us stand still and let him fight for us. God bids us to stand still and to see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for us. God in Christ has made a way for us to pass through the waters of judgment unscathed. For those in Christ, we pass through what would ordinarily drown us, namely the judgment of God. And we look back on it from the other side. And we see it utterly overwhelm the unrepentant, as the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When there seemed to be no way, God made a way. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. We might put a little spin on that to help make the correlation clearer. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever goes to the bottom of the Red Sea in me is not drowned. Though he is at the bottom of the Red Sea, so to speak, it is dry for him. And this is what baptism visually signifies. We go down into the water, but we don't drown. We come back up. God brings us safely through the waters of judgment. If there was a sacrament for unbelief, if there was a sacrament for unbelief. It would be something like lowering a person into the water and holding them there until all the life is gone. This is what happens when the unbeliever faces death, faces God's judgment. It overcomes them. It overwhelms them. And it would have done the same for us had not God brought us up. Had not God given us a spiritual resurrection, given us a new birth, had not God looked at us dead in our trespasses and sins and made us alive together with Christ. Christ brings us safely through 
that which otherwise and ordinarily would have overwhelmed and overcome us. So don't go away thinking that God will make a way for whatever it is that you want in your life on the basis that God made a way for the children of Israel to go through the Red Sea. Rather, remember that when all other hope of life on the other side is fading and you see no way through death and judgment to safety on the other side, when you realize that you can't fight for yourself, that you can't flee fast enough, that you can't rescue yourself, that you can't march quickly enough, remember that there is one who fights for you. Be still, stand firm, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, that he will work for you. When all looks bleak, sing, on thee, on thee my fainting hope relies. I will wait beneath thy feet.